Welcome to everyone who's joined us from near or far, and thank you for spending your time with us. You're listening to Faith Connections Creativity of Love podcast. My name is Sabrina, Program Director for Faith Connections. We are one of six Bonbon ministries established in 2005 by the Sisters of St. Joseph of Toronto as a way to connect with and minister to young adults. You can find more information about our ministry on our website, faithconnections.ca. This episode on Gwen Vivier concludes our Creativity of Love series, where we've asked ourselves this summer how we can actively prepare a better time in these days. Faith Connections Program Coordinator Erica closes out our thoughts on how to move forward, how to take our next steps by looking at the Buen Vivir concept with Father Greg Kennedy. We heard about Buen Vivir first from Leah Watkiss, Ministry Director for the Ministry of Social Justice, Peace and Creation Care for the Sisters of St. Joseph of Toronto. This idea of what makes a good life is hardly new, but there was something deeper in this concept than just an obvious statement. Our conversation with Father Greg helps us see that it has a much more integral message. Out of deep respect for the Indigenous peoples in Canada, we acknowledge that Faith Connection works on the territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and Mississaugas of the Credit First Nations. We also recognize the contributions and enduring presence of all First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people in Ontario and the rest of Canada. As settlers, May our learning today help us create and support true acts of respect and reciprocity. So, Father Greg, thank you so much for being with us. And um, perhaps you want to share just a little bit about yourself and what you're involved with right now. Certainly. I joined the Jesuits in 2006, having lived here where I am currently at Ignatius Jesuit Centre for a year of discernment, working on the farm. Uh, was ordained a priest in 2015, so five years ago in May, May 23rd. It was the day before Francis signed Laudato Si, so I was, I was ordained on that, that special weekend huh. on which also um, Oscar Romero was beatified. So it, it was, wow. for me, it was, quite a, it was quite a special weekend. Yeah. So I've been here at Ignatius Jesuit Centre, which is located in Guelph, Ontario, since 2017, after I came, I come back from Colombia. And I, I serve here as a spiritual director, working on retreats and ongoing spiritual direction. Because of COVID, I'm spending much more of my time in the fields, working the farm. Very nice. Battling weeds. But, um, but yes, my, my, my official title is spiritual director here on the farm. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and like I shared earlier, I've been to the center and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I would encourage anyone to, uh, to explore the option if they want to meet with spiritual directors, if they want to grow in their faith. I know there's virtual programming that you're offering as well at this time. Yeah, so it's a space. I believe so too. Anyone who shows up certainly feels that, that there's been people, there have been people praying on this land for generations. There's, there's a certain quality of the, of the space here that, that is very, very consoling. Well, today we're going to be talking about Buen Vivir. And so, idea. yes. <laughs> so in your own words, Father Greg, what is Buen Vivir? Buen Vivir, uh, I guess I should start with the translation. It's Spanish, of course, for living well, basically. So uh, we often think of Perhaps living well is living high, high on the hog, or the life of Riley. It's not about that at all. Living well, according to Buen Vivir, is all about relationship and harmony, harmony in our relationships. Uh, first of all, with nature, with creation, and as part of that, with other creatures, including human creatures. So it's, it has an emphasis on relationship in harmony, collective, 
collectivity. So rather than this kind of hyper individualism that we see in many Western cultures, it tends to look at, at the whole uh, rather than individual parts. So how do so how do we live well on a planet that has finite a finite generosity? We might say so that we can share and that we can all grow together. So kind of behind the idea is that what's good for the part is good for the whole. And I mean, that's basically any kind of organic being. If I even look at my own body, what's good for my liver is going to be good for my brain. And what's going to harm my liver is ultimately going to harm my brain. St. Paul knew the same thing, right? The eye doesn't say to the ear, because you don't see, you're not worthy. So each part plays its part. And together we, we make a strong organism. So Buen Bevere is basically kind of behind that insight saying, okay, everyone is included, everyone is needed, and what's good for one is going to be good, what's really good for one, truly good for one, is going to be good for all. And in fact, you could probably even use that as a criterion to say what is really good. So there are many competing notions of the good. My personal good is your personal harm. And I could say, well, there's something wrong there. That's obviously not my good. It may look like a good, or I may pretend that that's a good, but how could my good be your bad, as it were? It's very, very basic, and you would think that we all would believe this, and yet it's very, very hard to practice. The, the idea is not difficult to grasp, but it's very difficult to practice because the ego gets in the way, um, my sense of superiority gets in the way, my sense of ownership gets in the way, and all of this subtracts from my capacity to live the Buen Bavir, to live the good life. As it were. Thank you for that, that definition, and we're going to be talking more about different components of it. It's a big concept, yeah. but you distilled it so well, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, our second, second question is, from your perspective, what is the link between Indigenous communities and Buen Devere? Well, it's very, very intimate uh, because, of course, all of this has, Buen Devere as a concept, has stemmed directly from the Quechua people uh, in South America, particularly Ecuador. So Ecuador and Bolivia uh, have very high Indigenous populations, one of the highest in South America. And Ecuador was first, 2008, it, it said, not only do we have to live the Buen Bavir, but in order to help us do that, we have to constitutionalize it, make this part of our, our not only our kind of worldview, but our, our legal view as well. So in 2008, Ecuador wrote a new constitution, ratified this new constitution, in which nature has rights. So hmm. nature, in fact, is, is kind of a legal entity in, in, in Ecuador with, with many of the rights that we, we have, the right to, to health, right to well-being, right to non-exploitation, written right in the Constitution. I mean, we, it's hard for us to almost even, even imagine that, right? Yeah. For many of us, nature, is, if it's not uh, just the backdrop, is something that we, we own and, and can, it can use at our discretion. That's not the case now in Ecuador. If, if we try to uh, harm nature in, in an unconstitutional way, we can be taken to court. Other citizens can say, no, that's wrong. Uh, we're taking you to court. Wow. Now, does that actually happen? The, obviously, the um, Ecuador is not totally free from all kind of environmental exploitation and and harm but at least it's in the books and so they're starting to move more and more in that direction bolivia followed suit a few years later so it's written in bolivia's constitution as well so uh, finally some of the indigenous majority is really having a say in these countries so we can understand that too i mean these concepts are not foreign to what the first nations understanding of their relationship with the natural world that they are part of this natural world. It's not humans over and against it. It's human beings intimately related to this part of the rest of it. And any sense of high and mightiness or um, that somehow we dominate over this, the rest of creation is, is absent from, from this worldview. 
and says, no, we, we are only healthy insofar as the earth is healthy. Thomas Berry, a great eco-theologian and, and, um, and passionist priest, put it very, very succinctly himself. He said, you, you're never going to have he- healthy humans on a sick planet. That's impossible because, I mean, the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, if that's not healthy, how am I going to be healthy? I, who am who made of so almost 60% or around 60% of water, that if I eat poison, I'm going to become poisoned. <laughs> so, so all of these things, it just is... It's very, very common sense, and yet we forget about it so easily, and we, we kind of err in, in, in our own ecological awareness. We become alienated, and then we, once alienated, we start to think we, we have control over things, and we don't. Mm. So yeah, so it's, it's intimate, to go back to the original question, intimately tied, and in fact, it's a, it's a direct uh, fruit of indigenous worldviews. Now, you mentioned South America, and I know you spent some time in Colombia. Share more about, about that experience, how it shaped you, your worldview. Tell us about yes, Colombia. Certainly. I, it's, Colombia is certainly on my mind these days. Uh, it's, it's suffering greatly from COVID. Okay. Not, not, I mean, the cases are, are bad, not terrible, not to the extent of Brazil, for example. Economically, Colombia is one of the worst in, in the world in terms of economic inequality. I see. So, okay. so many people have, well, some people have a lot of money, many people don't have much money. And the whole notion of a lockdown is fine for most Canadians. We've got a big fridge full of food or we've got a pantry. Many Colombians don't have that. And if they don't go out and, and earn a little bit to eat that day, they, they'll go hungry. Mm-hmm. So it's put all kinds of pressure on people. People tend to live in, in much smaller quarters and with much, kind of in, in more, more, much more informal housing, often without lots of services. So it's, they're being very hard hit as is most of South America at this point. So again, the sad reality is that the inequality in the world, not only within Colombia, but in the world, just shows uh, it's, it's becoming more and more expressed these days in COVID is just one more time. I kind of had a, a direct experience of this. I, I was, our Jesuit infirmary in, in Pickering was COVID had entered it and, and infected most of the men there. I was asked to, to help out, to volunteer, and uh, which I did. It was, it was a beautiful experience, but what happened was, uh, I was very uncomfortable with the amount of trash that we were producing in terms of P- discarded PPE. And I just thought, holy smokes, uh, we were going through gloves like there was no tomorrow. And I was thinking, a box of these gloves, which we can burn through in, in a day and a half, maybe, I guess, uh, would be such a godsend for so many people around the world who just were totally unprotected, doing, doing what I was doing, but totally unprotected. And here, we, I mean, so again, it just highlighted to me, for me, the, the inequalities uh, of the world. Gwen Bevere would say, getting back to the, the concept, would say, that's, we can't, I can't really be well if the rest of the world isn't well in, in some way. And my wealth and my well-being, if it's somehow tied, especially if it's somehow tied to the, the undernourishment or the sickness of other countries, so that's, that's not really benefiting me. It can't. Maybe by appearances it may be, but there's, there's something deeper that's terribly askew there. Uh, and it's so wrong. I don't want to leave... The question on that kind of heavier note, I will say that Colombia was just a wonderful country. I truly felt a freedom there that I don't think I felt before in my life. The people are absolutely wonderful and musical and warm, and joyful, humorous. In some senses, kind of living the point of the year, perhaps more than, than we North Americans in the sense that they, are ha- they just like, love to be together, to talk, and wait around for, for people. They, you walk into a room and 
it's very rude not to, to say hello to everyone. Even if there's a meeting going on, the meeting stops and goes, hi, how you doing? You know, even if the person's <laughs> half an hour late, hi, how you doing? It's just a sense of what's what's important. And the important thing is not necessarily let's get this business meeting over. It's here's somebody who's entered the room, they should be greeted. Or I should be greeting others because I'm happy to see them. So uh, there's just a, a bit more of a, a communal nature, anyway, to my experience. Uh, the landscape, of course, is absolutely stunning. Colombia is the second most biodiverse country in the world, second only to Berlin, that's uh, Berlin, Brazil, sorry. Okay. Uh, and Brazil is uh, several times the size of Colombia. So they say kind of square kilometer per square kilometer, Colombia may well be the, the most biodiverse region in the world. Huh. Uh, because it spans so many, I mean, it has desert, it has, it has coastal regions, it has lots of, they call paramos, which are high altitude kind of unique ecosystems with very special plants that draw the water out of the air. Frijoles, I've forgotten the term for it. Frijoles is beans, that's not, that's not it, that's not what they're called. Something like that, I've forgotten the exact term. In Colombia, there's 60% of the world's, of this type of ecosystem around the world is found in Colombia. Wow. And, and in fact, it's thanks to these, these paramos that Colombia has quite a, is quite rich in, in that, um, fresh water because they, they draw water out of the atmosphere and then filter it into aquifers and into, into streams. Bogota, for example, uh, I could drink straight out of the tap. People drink straight out of the tap and that's fairly rare for South American cities to have okay. water quality that high without fear of, of being getting parasites, right? So um, yeah, wonderful time in Colombia. I, I was there to study theology. I studied, I did a master's of theology at La Javeriana, which is a pontifical university run by the Jesuits. Wonderful, mostly in Bogota. I was able to spend the last four months of my time, my two and a half years there, in a southern town called Pasto, not too far from the Ecuadorian border, working with a Jesuit work called Suyusama, which means beautiful region. Yeah, not sorry, it could be Quechua, but they are still still going strong, working with local communities in, in areas of organic agriculture, microfinancing, community financing, appropriate technologies, so low-tech effective technologies that people can fix themselves and that, that help really improve their lives. For example, little stoves, like extremely high efficiency firewood there, and that means clearing forests and things like that. So really promoting vegetables and healthy eating. It's funny, like Colombia is, is amazing in terms of what you can, you can grow just about anything there. And many people don't, don't eat a lot of vegetables, which is kind of shocking. So trying to promote uh, different uh, kind of culinary habits and possibilities. Uh, lots of emphasis on organic coffee production because that is, is a prime, because of the volcanic soil in that area. It's some of the best coffee in South America. Though other people may, may uh, contest that. I mean, coffee is, very, people are very proud of their, their coffee in, in their various <laughs> regions. So it was, again, just a wonderful being out with, with the campesinos, the, the, um, the people who work the land. It's all. That's great. We're going to continue the theme of South America. Who knew it would be such a big uh, part of our conversation so far? Uh, we're going to talk about the Amazon Synod. How do you see it connecting with Buen Vivir, and how does the Synod shape the future of the church? Big, big, big questions. So certainly, um, even in the documents, Buen Vivir appears, the concept Buen Vivir appears both in the preparatory documents and in the final document, and in, of course, Carita Amazonia, which is the Pope's letter of exhortation. So ever since Laudato Si, the church, thank, thanks to Pope Francis, has looked at a more holistic understanding of what it is to be human. So what it is to be human, according to this more holistic kind of cosmovision, is that we are part of creation. We're not the masters and rulers thereof, but we are, into, we are part of creation. We are creatures. So we have to start living accordingly because so far too long we've thought that 
this was our show and we could run it any way we wanted. It had worked up to a point and then we, things started to, to collapse, basically. Climate change, massive species eradication, extinction. They call it the sixth extinction. It's basically the sixth time there's been any, uh, uh, this, this kind of rate of extinction has happened in the world. And the last time was basically when all the dinosaurs were wiped out. Uh, so there's this whole notion that yes, we are meant to be here. God put us here. God created us. And yet somehow sin has gotten involved. So that not only is there some sort of kind of individual sin and egoism, there's, it seems to be there's a species egoism and sin that humans somehow can think that we, uh, we are the most important things ever and that we can use anything. We can take advantage of anything to, to, to promote our means, our comfort. And while that has kind of worked for a little while for certain people, for <laughs> it certainly hasn't worked for everyone and it hasn't worked all that long, even for those, that certain minority. Uh, the Synod was, again, kind of going on this, this new understanding, which, again, is not new. It's new to us Catholics, perhaps, and it's not new to the Indigenous peoples, that this is, this is not only kind of suicidal track, but it's not really even bringing us true fulfillment. I've often thought that if, say, consumerism and the way we live, um, kind of hyper-capitalism, and this buy-buy-buy individual egotistical way we live, if that somehow made us happy, like deeply happy, and some, somehow fulfilled us on a spiritual level, I would say, okay, it's too bad that other species have to suffer, that we get ahead, but maybe that's, that's, that's fine. But ultimately, it doesn't even bring us true happiness. And so this is, again, another notion of what Francis has called integral ecology, and even integral human ecology, that, again, what's bad for the planet is going to be bad for us. And, and while it may give us some thrills for a little while, it's not, it's, it just cannot fulfill our deeper longings and desires, which is, is always for a greater connection. It's always for greater intimacy. It's always for greater closeness to God and to our other fellows, be them human or not human. So we are made to be connected, and that's how God made us. And so when we're disconnected, when we're alienated, we, we suffer, and through that suffering, we cause others to suffer. So Pope Francis's whole notion that the way that we are living mostly in the West is not only is it kind of morally suspect, it's spiritually unsatisfying. So why are we, why are we pursuing it <laughs> to the detriment of everything? And this is where the true conversion has to come. Until we realize that, until we, we actually wake up and say, this is not getting me anywhere, uh, despite all the, the stuff it's gotten me, but this is not really getting to me what I truly desire, uh, we're going to keep doing it in this, in this kind of insane dream that somehow it's going to deliver the goods when... By nature, it can't. As Jesus says, there's more to life than, than food and drink, right? Um, why are you so worried about all this stuff? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, justice and equality, and all of this other stuff will be added onto you. So if, until, we, until we get that experience that this is, told, this is deeply unsatisfying, we're going to pursue that, again, to the detriment of, of the rest of creation. So the, the synod, which is, it seems to me, a, a natural uh, or even like a logical consequence of Laudato Si's this turn, Basically, a turn that's not, in a sense, radical, it's a turn to its, its, its deepest truth. Because in Genesis, God makes, God creates and says, it is good, it is good, it is good. Uh, God creates humans in the garden in order to be involved in the garden in a very careful, loving way. And so when we don't do that, when sin somehow takes us out of that and makes us almost a hostile relationship to the earth, we lose our, in a sense, our birthright, which is connectedness, which is intimacy, which is fulfillment through being united 
with God through creation. The synod just takes that one step further saying, listen, this has pretty much been a longstanding understanding of, of indigenous peoples. They've got something great to show to offer us. That doesn't mean our whole history is junk. We have some great things. We've, we've got what Jesus Christ has taught us, which if we probably look at it a little more closely, is not all that far <laughs> from these indigenous uh, truths. And so we've got to um, value all this. We're in such a unique place in history where we can value in a, in a kind of unbiased way where we don't have to put uh, dogmas or kind of nations' identities above a common truth and say, let's try to learn from each other. Let's live on this planet well together. Let's look at this Amazon basin, which is so rich in, in culture, in biodiversity, in beauty. Let's look at this as a living entity and see what it has to teach us. And can we be, are we humble enough, that, that beautiful virtue of Christianity, are we humble enough to learn and to grow together? So it's, this has huge implications for the church, I think, and that we have, we're not even going to begin to understand for, for years yet. I mean, this whole notion of synodality, this, the synod was conducted in a completely different way than, than previous synods. It had incredible input from uh, lay people. In, or, in the preparatory documents, in order to prepare the documents, there was hundreds of thousands of, of people were, were asked their opinion, basically. What, what do you want of the synod? What do you want of the church? Uh, how can we serve you? So people all throughout the Amazon were... were we're actually listened to. And this is what they said, that we're kind of here to listen what you need. And we want to respond from that. We don't want to come in with these, these notions that we know everything and the church is going to uh, kind of impose what it believes is right. The church is here to listen. The church is here to respond. The church is here to serve. Imagine that, <laughs> you know, be servants. It sounds almost something like Jesus might say. <laughs> so, so again, a totally different way of, of being church and, this is going to have huge, beautiful changes, I hope, ramifications, you might say, consequences, beautiful consequences in the church to come. A humble, servant church that takes reality seriously, not, not its, its own kind of vision of reality, it takes this reality seriously, but always in light of the love of God and the dream of God of justice, equality, connectedness, joy, life to the full, in the word, basically. That's very beautiful. Yeah, it's very hopeful. I mean, yeah. of course, uh, you know as well as I that there was quite a bit of controversy around this, which is terribly, I mean, it saddened me to no end because uh, hopefully I just described what I saw was, was a deeply Christian understanding and, and aim and, and dream of this, of this uh, to make a place where every people are brothers and where all people are brothers and sisters sharing in the love of God, living in the love of God. They say, how could you, <laughs> who could argue with that? <laughs> and that's, and that, that's the vision of the synod. And not, again, to emphasize, it's not only a vision, not only kind of a pipe dream, but they did it. They, they did it in a completely different way. And it worked. And we, we, we now have this, this inspiration to say, okay, we can do things. We can do things that listening to people, bringing them in. So it's just not the clerics making all the decisions. But this, the church is the church of the people. And, and all people, these indigenous people are people. And we have to listen to them. Thank you for that. You're welcome. It ties into my next question, which is, as young Catholics, what steps would you offer to learn more about Buen Vivir and to living it more fully? Well, um, I would say, and I don't think I would be the only one who would say this, from a Catholic perspective, if you were to go and go out and read Laudato Si, Papal Encyclical, you'd get a pretty good sense of Buen Vivir. It's not mentioned so in those so many words, but that's basically the philosophy that runs throughout the whole. So again, it emphasizes integrity, Integrity is a beautiful word in itself. Integrity has a, a kind of a, 
a value a values characteristic that if I'm an if I'm a person with integrity, I tend to be honest. I tend to be upright. I tend to be authentic. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm someone who follows through on my word. So there's a beautiful, and that's in, those are all deeply Christian values. So it has this value aspect, but it also has this biological aspect, anthropological aspect, that to be integral is to have all your pieces working together for the for for one common goal. So it's not like I'm living a double life, or half of me is doing one thing, the other half is doing the other, or I can just kind of close off parts of myself and say, oh, they're, they're not important. To, to live an integral life is to have everything working together, all kind of transparent and all working together. That plays out greatly in saying that for far too long, we pitted the environment, it's a fortunate term, but we pitted the environment against the economy, for example. It's, that's such a false dichotomy, says, says Buen Bavir, says the Pope. But again, the economy is, is that, the economy, economy itself, as a word, comes from the name home in, in Greek. You can't have a functioning home, an economy, which is basically a functioning home, without a, a healthy place to live. <laughs> if you live in, a, in, in debris, you're not going to have much of an economy. So, so says, says Laudato Si, that every environmental issue, every ecological issue, issue is a social issue, is an economic issue, is a cultural issue, and vice versa. All these cultural, economic, social issues, uh, cultural issues, they all have ecological uh, ramifications. So to, to think that, oh, we can, we can address poverty, but not, not address ecological degradation, is just it's just silly because what creates poverty a lack of food lack of clean water lack of decent housing those are all ecological issues because if you don't have clean water you're going to be sick and you're going to need all kinds of money to clean that water so again trying to break down these false dichotomies or these 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 dualisms or however you want to call them that haven't served us at all and in fact have broken up our our whole our holistic way of being so yeah go out and read laudato si if you want to kind of get wine and beer, I mean, there's lots of stuff on online, but it's 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 pretty much common sense. If once we start to get away from the individual or individual rights into to more kind of collective understanding, it's not to say that individual rights are waived or stepped on, but there's a sense that the whole is important, and so my my right cannot supersede my obligations and my my care for the community. And there's there's lots of there's but Laudato see I'd say get in on it. <laughs> yeah, start there. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of community, now across time, in your opinion, how will this generation be viewed by future generations? Whoosh! Yeah, very very timely question. I was just reading an article in the New York Times. The author was saying that all, all these statues are coming down of colonizers and and former slave or slave traders of history and such. Again, I mean, who would we should not be kind of hero, hero, heroizing people. But uh, it does, he, he raised the same question. So how are future generations going to look at us? And before we get too high and mighty, uh, we should look at what, um, what sins we may be un, unwittingly committing right now. His, his big one was our treatment of animals. And I would have to agree with him. I mean, it's appalling. The, the meat industry around the world in all its forms is just, it's just systematic cruelty. And we lock it away. We don't see it. And in fact, we not only don't see it, we, we put criminal charges on it and expose it. So it's, it's against the law to go into a meatpacking plant, for example, with a camera, because we just don't want that stuff seen. So we say, well, what's so bad in there that it's against the law to, to show that footage to, to, to Canadians? You say, well, something must <laughs> be, it's not trade secrets they're trying to, they're trying to um, keep un, un, unknown. It's, it's, it's brutality, basically. And it would turn lots of people off. 
our, our treatments of the earth and of, of other species is, they're going to say, how could they ever do that? I've been so barbaric, basically. Or, and climate change is the same thing. Like, how could they have just lived it up with all the writing on the wall, all the scientists saying this and saying, who cares? Uh, we'll do what we want. Yeah. I mean, all our statues are, all our statues are going to be torn down and spat upon, I think, because who's going to be left? I mean, we're, we're leaving the state, we're leaving the earth in, in such an imperiled state. So, I mean, yes, we, we, have to, we have to be careful not to re rewrite history. I think we have to be careful not to throw too many stones. And we have to be uh, careful that even as we live to start to beg forgiveness for what we have done and start to live accordingly. Someone who begs forgiveness should not go immediately and redo the acts for which they're begging for forgiveness. So until we have that kind of conversion, say, okay, this is probably wrong. We're doing some terrible things to those people who come. Uh, they talk about intergenerational ethics. So while it may be illegal for me to go in and steal all your food from your fridge there, because we, we, should, we happen to be in the same generation, we're, we're existing on the planet at the same time. In effect, what we're doing now by, through climate change, making agriculture more and more difficult because agriculture requires a stable climate and the climate is going wacky. Freak storms, farmers can't, where once they can predict more or less when to plant, when to harvest, Many places in the world, this is becoming totally unpredictable. So all kinds of crops just are not, they never, they, either they never, plant, they never get planted or they never get harvested because they've been ruined or just they, they simply didn't grow because of the unpredictability. So basically we're stealing the, the food from the fridges of, of our children or our children's children. And yet because they don't exist right now, they can't say, they can't take us to court. <laughs> they can't call the police on us. But if we actually believe that these are humans, they're not existing right now, but they are humans, and we believe this. We are we are guilty, and we have to start to think, okay, what are we doing? And start begging forgiveness, and then acting accordingly. What do you, in your moments of despair over how we're treating the planet, how do you offer yourself or others consolation? Yeah, very important, extremely important question. I'm usually a fairly sanguine, kind of by nature. This hasn't always been so, but thankfully since, uh, I think since I joined the Jesuits, I, I tended to be a more buoyant, kind of happier person, which is a good sign. It wasn't always like that, of course, uh, especially in my teenage years and early 20s. I was the, the weight of the world, especially the ecological weight, weighed on me terribly. And I, I think my general attitude was anger. I've just seen what, what was going on and just like, how could we be so stupid and repeatedly stupid? So thankfully that, I mean, I, I credit this to my faith that while I still get angry and I still think we're, we're probably stupider now than we were then, I, I'm not as angry as much. And I have, I have faith to counter that. Because, I mean, ultimately, I guess, what I realized is that God is in control. And, and that does not get me off the hook of, of co collaborating with God, with being kind of God's agent or God's hands in the world. But ultimately, it's not up to me to decide what's happened, what happens, and what doesn't happen. And so I can take a, I don't have to bear, I don't have to carry all that weight. Uh, God has much broader shoulders than I do. God carries that weight. Now, of course, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we don't grieve. I think grieving is a very, very important and necessary human response to suffering. And until we allow ourselves some grief, we are not, again, not, we're not gonna be ready for conversion. And I don't think we're, we're grieving enough about lost species, about human populations. They say 5 million children a year die, or 5 million children under the age of five die from malaria, these completely curable diseases, just for lack of interest on our part, basically. If we just put a fraction of the global military spending towards these, or we could eradicate those diseases overnight, basically. So, so why don't we do it? Um, so we need to grieve that. We need to grieve our own complicity in, in this indifference. But 
but grief is always, um, grief, the root of grief is love. I don't grieve that which I don't love. If my enemy dies, <laughs> I probably, probably might be, probably be more happy than, 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 um, than sad. Right. If someone I love dies, I, I grieve. And so if I love these people, if I love the earth, if I love these, these other children of God, whoever they need to grieve them. And that allows me to tap into the love. And hopefully out of that love, I'll start to, to live differently. And so the love is fundamental. I mean, this is God so loved that God wanted to be part of it. And hence the incarnation. So until I can tap into that love, I'm not really going to live fully present to the realities as they are right now. So love deeply, grieve deeply uh, as a part of that love. Uh, tap into your faith, but it, let it not be a faith that is overly secure or that keeps people out or only wants its own private fix, as it were, its, its, its own feel-good notion. I mean, that's not what Jesus promised. Jesus came to say, yes, I'll give you life to the full, but I'll also give you from your cross to bear. But with me, it, you'll be able to bear it. You'll be, it. That burden will be light with me, but it's still going to be a burden. And so to, to rely on those words, to pray deeply, to contemplate, to meditate, to get together with other people and to talk about this stuff. Because if we don't talk about it, um, we don't really think about it. And we certainly don't act on it. So the church has a, has a huge potential to be the, to put it in traditional languages, missionaries of ecological conversion. More important than being Christian missionaries at this point. Ecological conversion, meaning that we all live on this planet and we all need each other until we realize that in ways that are harmonious so that my actions are not your harms, my goods are not your bads. That is what we're called to do now. And that, in many ways, is the message. That's all Whether people say, Lord, Lord, <laughs> is perhaps not the most important thing right now. Now, we had a lovely conversation that will be in one of our other podcasts yesterday with a gentleman who was working in the renewable sector in Alberta. Mm. And, you know, he, I don't think, would say he's doing God's work, but there's an element of that that is very, very Christian in, on, on another hand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We can't forget that. I mean, that, I mean, I, it, it, both, both are found in the Bible, but I mean, I tend to worry that, as Jesus says, if they're not against us, they're for us. Mm. Don't try to stop them. Um, I'm, I'm kind of more inclined that way rather than if they're not for us, they're against us. <laughs> both are found in the Bible. So I mean, the Bible is quite an amazing piece of work <laughs> full of, full of uh, contradictions and, and uh, you can cherry pick what you want, but um, somehow for me, that speaks more of the spirit of Jesus that if they're not against us, they're for us. So let's try to find our common ground and, and be together. That's beautiful. Um, and your, from your perspective, what makes a good life? In many ways, I'm living it here. I'm just looking outside my window and I see this, these beautiful community gardens. I see a, uh, green i see lots of i see some birds so certainly an intimacy with the, the natural world is is indispensable my times in cities i've lived in cities bogota being the biggest one you know, 10 billion 10 million people sorry beautiful but uh, we do require i think just because we, we co-evolved and we're, we're from the earth some sort of connection with the earth we suffer when that's not there so that's certainly important uh, along with that is community without kind of some sort of sense of community some sort of sense of belonging it's very hard to live a, in a, a good life. I think from community stems a sense of meaning, significance, a purpose in one's life that, I mean, even a, a hermit, I think needs to feel that he or she is, is contributing to the well-being of, of, of others. And this is why you don't go, you don't become a hermit because you hate other people. You go there because through prayer and through devotion, uh, you're actually doing good in the world. And this, this is, you feel that's, that's your call. So again, that's, that's a, is perhaps a little more 
kind of conceptual notion of community, but it's certainly community. So without community, without purpose, without meaning, it's very, very hard to live a good life. Uh, probably impossible. Of course, good food, <laughs> and I don't mm -hmm. mean uh, I don't mean junk, uh, abundant junk. I mean food that that is is well grown, uh, with care and love, and is healthy is is extremely important. I mean because it it contributes to our own health. Uh, music is certainly indispensable. So all of these joys, and again, uh, Francis Pope Francis says this so beautifully in in I think it's chapter five or six of Laudato Si. All these these simple pleasures are really if we just stop and, and, and take enough time to, to enjoy them, they're really what bring us fulfillment in, in life and really allow us to feel good. And I think this is one of the blessings of, the, of COVID. Say we don't need to run around like, yeah, and we don't need to fly around like social butterflies um, doing everything with this fear of missing out. I mean, we just put that fear on aside and say, listen, what do I, what can I deeply experience today and, and try to experience it to the profoundest depths and, and suck the marrow out of it. I like that. Suck the marrow out of that, <laughs> out of the, the richness of the moment. Yes, exactly. Well, we've talked about the arts and the richness that that can bring to life. And I know you published a book of poems, so congratulations. Ooh, thank you. I've always been in awe of the creative process. I wonder if you could tell us more about how you bring about your poems. Where do you find inspiration? When do you write? What topics most interest you? Sure. Maybe I'll start with a little anecdote. Two weeks ago, I, I, I received an email from my 10th grade English teacher, whom I hadn't seen for 27 years or so. Uh, somehow he got my name and just wanted to see how I was doing. Heard I was a Jesuit and kind of thought that was great. And uh, this, he was a public, this, I went to public high school, uh, but it turns out he, uh, he had thought of going into ministry himself. Anyway, all to say that he was the one that, that turned me on to, to writing. So I felt, I feel completely indebted to this 10th grade teacher of mine who had the, who had, who, who took the time to reach out to me and, and, and kind of see where I was at. So. So yeah, so it all started grade 10. Uh, he encouraged us to write poetry, so I started. And then it became a, a spiritual practice. It kind of became perhaps my way of journaling. So I, I, every morning I pray, and without forcing it, I, I try to write a poem each day. The, the Psalms, the book that you refer, to which you referred is entitled Reupholstered Psalms. So that was a little more, I guess, systematic as far as, uh, as I am uh, systematic. I'm not terribly systematic in anything, but... Um, <laughs> I took, I would read the psalm in Spanish, pray over it, and then allow what I felt was the emotional core of that psalm, because as you know, the psalms are just full of emotion. That's the joy and that's the, um, the anguish of the psalms, and that's why they still speak to us, because they are raw emotion. So I tried to get, feel the emotion and then reupholster them, as it were, giving them, how, where would that feeling, where does that feeling arise in me? What kind of modern context does that feeling arise in me? And then write, compose, re, re Kind of restate that psalm based out of that feeling in our modern context. I kind of call them psalms for the Anthropocene, because that's the, the, the scientific term for the age in which we live. Human beings are the major geological, biological force on the planet. So it's, it's us that are actually creating most of the change on the planet. So things like um, mass migration, species, racism, all these things come up in the psalm, these, these reupholstered words, based on, on, the, on the core, the core emotional, emotive, affective, the state of the original psalm. Interesting. I love to hear the backstory, like I said, in a creative process. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a delight. So I mean, not to uh, make this into an infomercial, but if people want to buy the book, it's, it's through Novalis. Uh, Novalis published it. It's called Reupholstered Psalms, Ancient Songs So New, and it's, you can easily find it from Novalis or other places. Fantastic. Speaking of songs, you also are, is it a ukulele player? 
Yeah, I play some guitar and ukulele, yes. Yeah. So how is the creative artistic expression connected to your faith? You shared a bit about that, but I wonder if you could share a bit more. This may sound a bit unorthodox, but were I to have to define God, which I try to avoid, defining God, but where I push to the wall, I would say God is creativity. Huh. Uh, now, God is a person. I mean, I, I believe in all everything that we say in the creed, of course, but uh, if, if I just had to, to give kind of a definition of God, God is creativity. And so I think, personally, when I feel creative, when I feel that I'm writing songs, writing poems, in, in an authentic way, as in, in a prayerful way, I feel closest to God. I feel connected to God. I feel that something beyond me is going on here. And uh, really, I'm kind of, in a sense, an instrument to, to the spirit. So it's, for me, it's, it's an absolute delight. So if I don't, when I put it another way, when I can't really write or when, when I feel like stymied creatively, I know something's up in my spiritual life. Something's, something's quite, um, something's amiss and I'm not really connecting with God. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Now, hmm. so I don't try to, I mean, that's the thing with writer's block and I think you can't really beat yourself out of it. You have to submit and say, okay, and this, this is kind of Ignatius's, St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits, notion of consolation too, that we can't, we are totally dependent on God's grace, totally dependent. So I can't make myself feel good uh, on a deep level. I can't make my loved. I can't make myself grace. And when I, when I don't feel them, I, I can't manufacture that. I have, those periods are basically there to, to remind me, yes, how dependent I am on God's, God's mercy. God's, and so when I don't feel creative, rather than kind of trying to charge through, I say, okay, I'm basically I'm yours, God. Uh, do with me as you will. Mm. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But, um, mm -hmm. And just that kind of surrender. Uh, which is, is, again, that's how the spiritual life operates as well. And you said you've been on retreat. You know that sometimes it just comes out of the blue and you feel absolutely connected at one. Uh, and then other times you think, wow, oh, this is going to be great. This, this prayer period is going to be absolutely amazing. And it's a flop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. I fall asleep or something. So, yeah, all that, all that remind us, that, okay, okay, we a little bit of humility in all this and, and to let God be God and do God's, do God's work. That's wonderful. I think we're going to end it there, Father Greg. Okay, well. Hopefully this was enjoyable, as enjoyable for you as it was for me. Yes. As much anyway. Thank you so much for your time. Buen Vivir, in its grounded richness, will hopefully help us collectively reframe our outlooks, especially as we remain beside each other in these difficult times, as well as put into place the foundation for better times ahead. I will propose this analogy. If the Judeo-Christian traditions map their lives by the Ten Commandments, then Buen Vivir can act as a contemporary key, or legend, to follow the map. This series has given us a chance to listen, really sit with our thoughts, and explore some challenging and sometimes overwhelming subjects. More importantly, we've come to learn about the ongoing work of these groups and individuals, and that it, the work, is not so far out of our hands. Non-Indigenous people need not be intimidated by becoming more involved with truth, justice, and reconciliation. and. No matter your age or stage in life, a just transition and recovery is a possible and achievable future ahead of us. We're so thankful to Father Greg and all our speakers for this Creativity of Love series, for their open and passionate sharing of knowledge and perspectives. For more information on our upcoming events and programs, please visit our website faithconnections.ca or follow us on Facebook. We're going to leave the final words of our series to Father Greg who recites his reupholstered Psalm 1. Happy are those who get happiness, that is, who understand that God is on their side. They sit down together for long hours over tea, avidly discussing life's blessed minutia. They are like trees 
Need I say more? Smiling slowly sunward into a gentle blue eternity, full of fruit and leaves, reaching a deep kindness into the heart of earth. The ungrateful are not so, but are like chaff or more pointedly balloons. Let slip from a disappointed birthday hand and blown into steely power lines. The Lord would love to give them another, but they can't pry their anguished eyes from the bit of airy color trapped far beyond their grasp.